The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. Following a successful career on the New York Mercantile Exchange, Stephen Shork transitioned to an upstairs trading operation. He quickly realized that the demise of open outcry on the commodity futures exchanges eliminated the transparency of deal flow. In response to this void, Stephen developed proprietary multivariate probabilistic models to identify statistically significant ranges at which to trade energy products and or hedge exposure. In 2005, Stephen co-founded the Shork Group, the industry's premier provider of price range forecasting and independent fundamental, quantitative, and technical analysis. Central to the company's product suite is the Shork Volatility Bands, SVB, dual representations illustrating opportunities at which the underlying calculations signal deviations from historical norms. Professionals in the global energy arena rely upon this methodology to improve economic performance and manage risk. Stephen is a registered commodity trading advisor with the National Futures Association. Now let's get into the episode with Stephen, principal and editor at the Shork Group. Welcome back, Dave and John. It's good to be back. Yes, it is, Lysander. Looking forward to speaking with Stephen as well today. Yeah. Yes. Today we are joined by principal and co-founder of the Shork Group, Stephen Shork. Welcome, Stephen. Ah, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Stephen. It's 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 been a while since we last spoke, and I think when we did, it was March 2020, which was uh, the beginning of the pandemic, and and the energy markets reacted to those crisis situation. So a lot has changed since then in many ways. And uh, you being a, an expert in the marketplace, I wonder if we could share with our listeners a sort of a summary of what's happened in the energy markets between then and what's happening now, if you could. I realize that's a big task, but... Yes, uh, absolutely. So where we started was at the start of COVID mitigation protocols. So we saw a significant drop in demand, economic demand, demand for commodities, so forth. So we actually had a situation uh, shortly after we spoke where energy prices here in the United States went negative. Now, to the average listener, um, it, that's probably an idea that no one would ever consider. But uh, we keep in mind that commodities are the ultimate supply-demand market. And the situation that we had back in April of 2020 was speculators, kind of quote-unquote dumb money out there, went ahead and bought a lot of futures on the NYMEX. What had happened was that oil prices had crashed from $40 a barrel right at the start of the mitigation protocols and had gotten down to about $20-$25. Once they got to that area, speculators thought that was a great area to, uh, to buy in, thinking, hey, you know what? We already had a $20 drawdown. How far you know, can we fall from here? What they did not appreciate was the unique aspect of commodity markets in the futures. That is to say that when you buy or sell a futures contract, 97% of you are going to liquidate that position before the contract expires. That way, you do not have any obligation and your P&L is just determined by, okay, what you bought and where you sold it or vice versa. Uh, you could always sell the contract and then buy it back. But the most important thing is you buy it back before expiration. What the speculator, the smaller speculator did was they held on their $20, $25 for way too long. 
So when the expiration neared, they couldn't find anyone to sell this oil to. And the reason was because you have to deliver your oil or take delivery from your oil at a specific area. And here in the United States, that is in Cushing, Oklahoma. And the problem for the speculators was that the tankage was completely full. So no one wanted to buy the oil back because there was no place to put the oil. So these speculators on the final day just got stuck and they had to kept on lowering and lowering the price to convince someone to, to buy it to the point where prices at one point that day got down to minus $40 a barrel. So these speculators who bought oil at $20 had to pay someone else to buy the oil back from them. So it was quite a unique situation, but it has happened before in the commodity markets, typically in your smaller regional natural gas markets. So of course, in 2020, we went into the protocols, economic activity ceased and prices hung lower. But what no one foresaw, myself included, was the rapid rebound in demand once those protocols began to ease a little bit. There was a tremendous amount of pent-up demand in the market, and we took off. Now, the oil companies, both domestic producers and OPEC, excuse me, were reticent to ramp production back up because they've seen this movie before. Commodity markets, oil markets are the ultimate boom-bust market. So you need the booms to get you through all the busts. And what happened is the industry went bust 10 years ago or 12 years ago during the Great Recession. They invested heavily. This was the start of the shale gale here in United States. Production, acreage went whole hog. The banks were lending money out because capital was virtually free with uh, such low interest rates. And once again, the industry got itself overextended. And then COVID hit, and uh, now we're looking at bankruptcies. Now we're looking at some pretty dark uh, times in the market. So the industry and their bankers, most importantly, because these are the people who control the financial levers, are, are still licking their wounds. And the industry has been slow to respond. Prior to COVID, at the end of uh, 2019, the United States was the largest crude oil producer in the world at over 13 million barrels a day. We were a net exporter, meaning that for every barrel of oil, gasoline, diesel fuel that we imported, we exported 2.2 barrels. So it was great for our current account uh, deficit. And so, but now, what, what have we had over the past year? Well, last summer, it was announced that COVID was over. And then since the summer through the end of the year, all we heard about was a Greek alphabet soup of different variants of COVID. So once again, uh, the fear is, well, we're going to shut down again. It just happened in China last week. Uh, 51 million people were, were shut in because of an outbreak. So the signals that the market is sending is that we're, we're right around the corner from the next economic downturn. So the producers are taking a very cautious stand. OPEC, which has already replaced more than two-thirds of the oil it took off the market at the start of COVID, they are incrementally increasing production each month, but they're not going to, to go over, over and above to the to, to the. You know, you know, to the uh, anti what the White House wants to see. So at this, uh, you have a situation where OPEC is, is is growing incrementally. The domestic producer has stalled. They were down to ten. You know, they dropped from 13 million barrels a day to about 10 million barrels a day. They've been they've ramped back up to 11 and a half million barrels a day, but they've plateaued there and they don't show any indication 
of coming ramping back up to their 2019 peak. A lot of this has to do with the rhetoric, the vitriol, the policies by this White House, by the president himself and by his cadre. Going back, I wrote a report the other day, three pages long of all of the quotes about how they want fossil fuels in the ground. They don't, they, they're discouraging investment in fossil fuels. They, we have the ESG that's invaded the corporate boards of some of your largest oil and gas companies, and they are pressing for the allocation of capital away from fossil fuels and towards quote unquote decarbonization. So all of these efforts uh, violated one of the primary laws of economics, and that is capital goes where it's welcomed and stays where it is well treated. In the current situation, capital is not welcomed by the myriad of uh, choices, again, rhetoric, actions that have been put in place over the past year, and therefore it's not being well treated. So you're not going to invest. So now we're looking at a situation in the oil markets here in the United States where we already underinvested through COVID. We, we had to cut back. And now the signals that are being sent by the powers that be is continue to underinvest in fossil fuels. We don't want you bringing more fossil fuels to the market. We want you investing in decarbonization. It is a zero-sum green energy policy, and we are now reaping uh, the dividends from this policy. Instead of go going and working with the industry and saying everything should be a part of the stack, nuclear should be part of the stack, natural gas should be part of the stack, I get it. You want coal out of the st stack? That's fine. Take coal out of the stack, but promote natural gas, promote nuclear, promote wind, promote solar. They all have a place in this market. Solar is fantastic in Southern California most of the time. Wind is great in West Texas most of the time. But the problem is when the wind doesn't blow, and that usually occurs on your hottest days when everyone's running their ACs, you don't have any energy source other than natural gas. And the same goes for California. When the sun doesn't shine or at seven o'clock, beginning at seven o'clock at night, you don't have solar. So you need natural gas. In central uh, California, when the Santa Ana's blow during November, the wind blows, but it blows too fast. So you cannot run the windmills. Again, you need natural gas. And we saw the same situation occur last summer and this winter in Europe, where in Great Britain, the windmills just stopped. The wind just stopped for a brief moment in time. And factories and mills and, and commercial entities in England were forced to go out into the open market and buy power at an extremely high price. Because once again, uh, we're not investing in the build out in natural gas and in nuclear. In fact, we, there's a war on natural gas. We want to shut down nuclear and we, we think we can replace all of this with renewables and we can't. Maybe sometime in the future, way in the future, we'll figure out a way. And of course, we're talking about you need storage for all of this power. We're not there yet, but we're killing one side of the market and the other side of the market is not able right now to step up to the plate. So we have a situation now where oil prices two years ago, they're at a minus $40 a barrel. Today or recently, back in a month ago, uh, they hit $140 a barrel. So we've had a $180 per barrel swing in prices. Now, the concern here, of course, is what's going on in Ukraine, how dependent Europe is on their energy uh, reliability coming from Russia. So we're looking at a situation where tightness is going to remain in the markets. 
And right now we're consistently above $100, $110 a barrel, both in the US market and the Brent market in London which is kind of the, the, the global benchmark for oil prices. So we're looking at perpetually high prices. And we're at a situation today where demand is at its weakness, weak, uh, weakest. We're northern latitudes, you know, December, January, February, into March. You have snow on the ground. You have ice on the ground. Really, conditions not conducive to driving. But the weather is, it's spring now. The weather's going to start to warm up. More cars. The holiday traffic's going to pick up. So we're at the weakest demand part of the year, and oil prices are at $110 a barrel. There are potential scenarios once this travel demand picks up, both for gasoline, for diesel, for jet fuel. Once this demand really ramps up, then you're going to have all the ingredients for even higher prices. Our quantitative analysts here at Shork are forecasting right now a 27% probability that by the peak driving season, oil prices will be at $150 a barrel, along with a 17% probability we'll hit $200 a barrel. It's uh, levels that two years ago were unthinkable are now within the realm of probability. And there are even options on the Brent market trading for $300 barrel oil. So someone out there is, is betting that uh, we could see a substantial rise even at these elevated levels. So it all gets down to uh, the driver between for every commodity market. It's right now we don't have enough supply and uh, we have a lot of demand. So, and this is being reflected in the formation of the forward curve in the futures prices. So when you look at the calendar, each month there's a deli- your contract is delivered for a certain month. The spot market, the market for today, the market for this month is trading at a precipitous uh, premium to the outer month contracts. So now if you own storage, what the market is telling you is drain your storage and sell at these high prices. So there's no incentive. The market's giving no incentive to build supply because everything's being consumed right now. So it is this perverse logic that prices are high because we don't have enough supply, but prices are high. And that is a reason to even draw down further supplies and not build inventories. So it is a uh, unique situation that we've done a complete 180 from where we were two years ago, where we had too much supply to today. We don't have nearly enough supply and demand is about to pick up significantly over the next few months. Don't you just love this industry? Because like every day is so different. It's never the same. And thank you for explaining what's happened over the last two years. Like it it is a phenomenal situation. And and as you've indicated, it's going to continue to be dynamic going forward for sure. So thank you. Yeah, no doubt. Yes, welcome. Okay, Stephen, you touched on current affairs, Russia. And I think we we have to say at the moment that, you know, we're in the midst of a a fairly scary situation and a terrible humanitarian crisis. But we've got the issue that Russia is a key player in oil and gas. And we've got a combination of countries saying they won't export from Russia and Russia threatening to turn off gas supplies to European customers. So from your position, what impacts do you think that the Russian energy market are going to have both on Europe and the global markets? Yeah, uh, well, it is devastating for, for the Europeans uh, because Russia's threat to cut off exports is a real threat 
because they've done it before. They've done it with uh, the main pipeline coming through Ukraine into Europe. There was always a squabble between the Ukrainians and the Russians as far as gas goes. The Ukrainians have been in arrears on paying for the gas. They've siphoned off that gas that was destined for Europe. So uh, Moscow ha has, has done it in the past, and they were certainly, certainly capable of doing it in the future. But Europe has uh, really dug itself a hole. Once again, it's their zero-sum green agenda. Two Januarys ago, carbon permits, and these are permits that end users of fossil fuels have to buy to offset the amount of particulates that their generation is putting into the air. So we're talking steel mills, aluminum smelters, of course, power generators. And the, and the goal of the permit market was to wean the industry, the heavy industry, off of coal. But for a number of years, these permits traded at a very depressed price level. So that it wasn't giving uh, enough signal. It wasn't encouraging the push out of natural gas. So what the EU did was they cut the supply of uh, permits. And, and as we've just talked about what's going on in oil, when you reduce the supply and there's fixed demand, there's only one way for prices to go. So by uh, the summer of last year, the price of permits skyrocketed, nearly doubled. So what did this do? If you burned coal, you didn't go into renewables because renewables, again, are, are not reliable. You need dispatchable power. That means when I, I turn the light on, that light has to go on. When, when I fire up that blast furnace, there better be fuel in that furnace to melt that coke. So you need reliable power 24 hours a day. And, and that comes in the form of a fossil fuel BTU. If it's not coal, then it's going to be natural gas. So the EU got it half right. They drove the prices uh, to permits uh, to the stratosphere, and it did you know, push industry out of coal, but they did not go into solar. They did not go into wind. They went right into natural gas. So European natural gas markets, the Dutch TTF market and the British uh, MBP market, prices for natural gas traded and have been trading upwards of the equivalent of $300, $350 crude oil. So what has happened, of course, now is industry has had to slow their growth, slow their production because they simply cannot afford their power. And of course, this now has a knock-on effect because most people don't appreciate the fact that natural gas is your key feedstock for ammonia nitrate, for fertilizer. So this war to limit the production of natural gas is actually a war also on farmers because farmers rely on ammonia nitrate, of course, to increase their crop yields. But fertilizer prices have nearly doubled over the past year. So farmers are cutting back on what they're putting into the ground today. So their yields are going to be lower. And then we go forward and, and here in the United States, we have significant drought situations in the farm belt. So we could be looking at a very limited crop come next fall, which of course, again, low supplies, higher prices. So Americans and in, in, in general, in particular, and in, in the world in general, we're looking at uh, mass food inflation. Of course, Ukraine is a major exporter of, of wheat here in the United States. So it is a significant issue. 
that we're looking at and what is going on here in Russia, it is a octopus with tentacles going all over the place. So yes, Russia is a key player. The market of the government, of course, the United States has banned energy imports from, from Russia. Some of the chattering class that really don't understand what's going on in the oil markets will, will tell you, oh, well, Russia is only 8% of our crude oil imports. Okay, fair enough. But we import a lot of diesel fuel, gas oil, gasoline from, from Russia. And, and Russia is one of our largest, I think last year they were our second largest supply of total energy. So that's a lot of energy that has gone missing from uh, U.S. refineries and U.S. industry. And of course, that is going to have a detrimental uh, impact as prices rise. In Europe, it's the same situation now, and uh, you're doing exactly what you don't want to do. So the Germans proudly cut off their nuclear exposure to nuclear, thinking Nord Stream 2, the Russian gas pipeline, was, was going to be able to offset that. Well, that's not happening right now, and you don't have nuclear to fall back, and you have limited supplies of natural gas. So what are the Germans forced to do now? They're burning coal and coal exports, coal demand is hitting multi-year highs because we don't have enough of the cleaner fossil fuels and we certainly don't have enough of the renewables. And you have the same situation. Europe is the lounge act for what is about to happen in the United States because we're starting to see that. New York State last year, ex-former governor Andrew Cuomo had always the Indian Point nuclear power station, which is pretty much in his, where he lives in his backyard. He, he put up the obstacles where the nuclear plant finally shut down. Now, and he wants to make the case that this is for the environment. Well, the Fitzpatrick nuclear station in the Adirondacks is, is still going strong. And in fact, New York State government came in for funding to keep that nuke station open. Why? Because that part of the Adirondacks, there's a tremendous amount of poverty. And that nuclear station offered jobs in that area. So we're going to keep that power station open. But under the guise of we're doing this for the environment, we shut down Indian Point. Well, Indian Point is a heck of a lot more important to New York State than the Fitzpatrick uh, nuke station up in the Adirondacks. In fact, 50% of Manhattan's power used to come from that power plant. So just like Germany, what does New York State have to do? They have to go across the border to my home state in Pennsylvania. They have to buy gas. They have to buy power. We are exporting our excess power to New York State, which, of course, comes at a premium. So once again, we have a situation where we've gone zero sum of in Germany and in Europe in general. It's costing them because now geopolitics, which we really haven't had uh, a geopolitical risk premium in this market since before the shale gale dur during um, the U.S.'s adventures in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is the first time in about 15, 15 years that a geopolitical risk premium is being priced in, and the Europeans never saw it coming, the United States never saw it coming, and now we are vulnerable. Russia is responsible for about one out of eight every eight barrels that are traded each day in the global market in crude oil. So to the point that you know we we here in the United States have banned exports, the market has banned Russian uh, Russian oil. I think there was a story up in Salomvo in in the UK that dock workers there was a Russian car um, tanker in there and the dock workers refused to unload it. Trading companies are are afraid to buy Russian oil because of the financial situation. You, you need a lot, lot of capital, a lot of letters of credit to secure a 4 million barrel tanker of oil. 
and the bankers and, and the legislation that's being contemplated will cut off that money supply. So if you're a trader, we had the situation shortly after the invasion. One of the largest commodity trading companies in the world, Trafigura, already owned a Russian cargo of oil. They couldn't sell it because no one would buy it. So when you look at the difference between the Russian oil price, which is called Urals, uh, against the global benchmark, the Brent market, they, they trade, but they, you know, they, they trade at either the, uh, premiums or discounts. Trafigura had to discount its oil to $28 below the barrel, the price of Brent crude oil. So at that price, Shell took the bait and they bought it. And then now there was a tremendous backlash against Shell. Shell had to come out. They apologized. But given their situation, they are dependent on that Russian oil. But they have vowed every cargo they will buy, their profits will be donated to a charity. So that's in the West. We have the effective ban on Russian oil, and it is hurting. But the Chinese and the Indians in particular are, are going to continue, always have and will continue to buy Russian oil, but they're in a very advantageous place because they know the West has banned the oil. So they're now naming their price. We know the clearing price of Russian oil now is $28, $30 below the price of Brent. And of course, India and China are going to continue to buy oil at those levels. So, But it is having a tremendous knock-on effect of uh, taking what, what already was a situation of low supply around the globe. And now we're taking a major player, a significant amount of that oil off of the market. And of course, once again, when you shift uh, the supply curve to the left and you move the demand curve to the right, your y-axis price is going to continue to rise. And once again, we have a fundamental scenario that will help keep oil prices elevated, certainly through the summer. And as long as we do not have a peaceful resolution to the situation in Ukraine. Oh, sorry, John, you were going to say something. I was going to say, I, you know, that, that's interesting what you're saying there. I, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. What One is, mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. I'm amazed with this crisis, how many energy experts there are out there that I didn't know about who are talking about what's going on and how things work. But on a slightly off point here, we're having a spring statement in our government today, a budget statement, and we're looking at inflation at levels that it's not been before. And I suspect we're going to see our government blaming a lot of issues on the energy crisis that's caused by Russia. And I wonder if uh, this is going to be similar in other jurisdictions. It provides politicians, should we say, where they've got a, a failing system or something wrong with it. They've got a nice external cause now that they can say, ah, yes, it's because of what's happening with, with Russia. What's your view on that? Yeah, I have a strong view on that of just how craven U.S. politicians are. And they want to blame all of this on Putin, which is, I mean, as I wrote in my daily research note today, some say, as do we, the primary antecedents to surging energy costs are the combination of flooding the market with $1.9 trillion of unnecessary COVID relief. It was the third round of COVID relief. The economy was strong here in the United States. We did not need another $1.9 trillion flooding into the markets, which, of course, gives more spending power, more demand on all consumer goods. And, of course, we also had the belligerent rhetoric and the actions by the federal government. So by the 4th of July holiday here in the United States last year, and I'm sorry for our British listeners are bringing up uh, our celebration of 
freedom from the uh, tyranny of King George III. But the Fourth of <laughs> July, ho- the Fourth of <laughs> July holiday is kind of the start of the peak driving season. And by this for- last Fourth of July, the start of the peak driving season, gasoline prices in the United States were already forty percent higher. Ukraine, Putin had nothing to do with that with that rise. And by the fall, by Thanksgiving, another big holiday travel season, oil prices were 50% higher. Once again, nothing to do with Putin, nothing to do with Ukraine. On February 24th, the day Russian tanks tried to roll into Ukraine, oil prices were up 60%. So, and they've been up since then another 19%. So, the 19% rise since February 24th, yes, that is contributable to Putin. But prior to that, that 60% rise is clearly on the shoulders of our, our government. And so they're certainly going to try and scape, scapegoat that. But uh, you, you're not going to be able to, when it costs more for a gallon of milk here in the United States than a gallon of gasoline, which it did up until uh, this latest rise, uh, you can't blame Putin on what you're paying at the grocery counter. So it is a specious argument. I think, you know, I think any government that tries to pull it off, and of course, they're going to do it in the UK. They're certainly going to do it here. They, they were already starting to do here in the United States. And and of course, what we're getting now is idiotic solutions. So the big talking point now to help U.S. consumers is to have a quote unquote a windfall tax on big oil, and we're going to use that tax to subsidize Americans, lower income Americans. But this brings up the question: What exactly is windfall in the industry? So I did some analysis, crunched some numbers recently. Last year, big oil, and this is ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, Chevron, and France Total, uh, they earned over $72 billion last year. Okay, that sounds like a lot of money. And the Democrats want to tax that windfall and the windfall that's going to occur this year because they think you should tax a windfall in an industry that is recouping the $66 billion it lost in 2020. So, and they're thinking a $66 billion loss. Well, hey, that's just the cost of doing business. Recouping that loss and adding a little to it, well, you know, that, that's a windfall. So it really is a, a, a rather you know, crazy outlook. And crunching the numbers even further, what does exactly a $72 billion profit translate into? Well, it translates into an 8% net profit margin. So in other words, for every $1 in revenue collected, $0.08 was profit. Or said another way, it costs $91.9 for the industry to earn $1. Okay, And that is following the industry losing a net profit margin of 11.2% in 2020. So how does that stack up? Why is that a windfall when you consider Visa, uh, MasterCard, uh, credit card companies, companies whose business model is predicated on people going into debt? Well, last year, Visa earned $12 billion, which translated to a net profit margin of nearly 50%, 50%. Over the last five years, the company's net income averaged $10 billion with an average margin of 46%. Hmm. That sounds like a windfall.
but no one's talking about going after Visa. No one's talking about going after Citigroup, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, GM, Stellantis. You know, the people that brought us the Great Recession. All of these companies were the recipients of major, the largest bailouts in U.S. corporate history. In 2020, big oil was losing $66 billion. At the same time, big bailout earned $39, million, $39 billion. So we're not going after GM. We're not going after Citigroup for their windfalls, but we are going after just one area in the market. And it is unconscionable. And it is, it's a political gimmick, but frighteningly, there's enough votes potentially in this Congress and certainly in the White House that could press forward with this. And of course, what is this going to do? It's, that's going to guarantee you $200 oil, because when the government steps in to limit supply, and you're going to limit supply by raising taxes uh, on the companies, you're giving them a tremendous incentive to minimize their production. So you, all you're going to do is get less supply onto the market, and you're going to continue to drive prices higher. So it's this perverted logic where I'm going to make it more expensive to produce the producer's not going to produce, prices are going to get higher, and then I'm going to turn around and raise taxes even further. And it's this perpetual cycle that's insanity and will never work because it's impossible for it to work. Thank you. So I, for all our listeners, and as we indicated, Stephen, prior to our recording, that we have listeners around the world. And so you just gave them a sort of a, a like economics fundamentals of how the energy markets work, but also, but also quite frankly, showing the tentacles of, you can't just look at oil on its own. You have to look at a variety of different energy sources all the time. You can't look at one in particular in isolation because then you're missing, you're missing the big picture. So thank you for again, sharing that. So I, I'm going to come back and, and talk about uh, sort of the, the, the is there a, a perceived, do you know if there's a, a backup plan that's also possible for replacing Russia's contribution to oil and gas supply globally? Is, is there anything that's actually feasible that you can see based on your analysis to replace? Not within the uh, next six months, certainly not. So we're going to continue to look at scarcity in the market and scarcity, again, one of the primary tenets of economics. You know, And this is from one of my favorite economists, Thomas Sal. The whole concept of economics is scarcity. There's never going to be enough produced to sate all those who want it. So this is why you have price. And this is the situation that we are in now. And we cannot ramp up. It's not like flipping a switch. We just can't start opening up the spigots. It, it will take time. Here in the United States, we can certainly put one and a half million barrels a day of oil back onto the market, but the administration is unwilling it to work with the industry. The industry, they've raised royalties for U.S. producers. They've put up extra red tape for producers. So the White House talks a great game about all these outstanding leases, but just because you have a lease doesn't mean there's oil on that acreage and you have to explore for it. That costs a lot of money. Well, your the administration is now telling the banks don't lend the money. So, so, so in this, the United States will never be able at this rate to uh, offset some of that oil. Same goes for natural gas. The United States has now become the swing producer in LNG exports. A lot of the LNG produced and, and shipped abroad, the United States is not on fixed terms, meaning that Japan or Germany or France, they've signed a long-term 20-year supply agreement. The United States is that swing producer. So when Germany, for instance, they need more natural gas because their terms 
don't supply enough, well, the United States can provide that natural gas, which is what the United States is doing now. But they can't do it anymore because their facilities are maxed out. They're already producing and shipping as much natural gas as they can around the globe. So that's part of the answer, but certainly that's not going to solve the uh, answer. Other major natural gas producers around the world are trying to ramp up. But once again, it's not flipping a switch. So it's going to take time. And uh, But ultimately, no. When, when you're taking one out of every eight barrels of crude oil off for a given amount of time, but you can help mitigate that loss of, of supply, but you're not going to completely uh, eradicate it. So, so certainly you're, you're go going to look at a market. Once again, it's all about scarcity and scarcity in this market will remain because as I just to wrap up, we can help offset it, but the United States is unwilling. The, the government is unwilling to, uh, to work with the industry, lower the royalties, lower the cost for permits, lower the red tape. They would rather talk the terrorists than Texans. So we're now ma making overtures to Iran. Iran, which the State Department has listed as an official state sponsor of terrorism since 1984. In Syria, Iran's de facto puppet state has been on that list since 1979. The only other two countries on that State Department list are Cuba and North Korea. So really nice company that the United States is trying to work with to get more Iranian oil on the market as opposed to more oil out of Texas. So when you have this kind of crazy logic that we'd rather work with terrorists than help promote our own domestic industry, but you have a situation, again, I'll say it, insanity, and you're assuring higher oil prices, natural gas prices, energy prices for the foreseeable future. Just a follow-up, because this is being recorded in Canada, even though John's in the UK, can you explain to our listeners, is there an opportunity for the Canadian market to serve or fill some of that void because of the Russian, if there is such an opportunity and what it would take? Absolutely, yes. The United States relies tremendously on, on Canadian oil. Canadian oil is responsible for about 50% of the U.S. market. And, that, and I think listeners should appreciate that, yes, the United States was a net energy exporter, and we were producing 13 million barrels a day of crude oil, but we necessarily could not use that oil because our refineries are not engineered to use this oil. Our refineries are engineered to use a much heavier, denser oil, which comes from Alberta. So th this is the type of oil are engineered for, which is great because the heavier, the dirtier the oil, the cheaper it is. The United States, basically, in a lot of the oil they produce, is champagne. It's very light. It's very easy to refine. So there's a tremendous demand for U.S. oil around the globe. So what the United States was able to do was export its caviar and import tuna fish. And it was a tremendous opportunity, which gave the United States unparalleled comparative advantage in industry because of the cheapest energy costs. So yes, so we still import a lot of that Canadian oil because our refineries can maximize that oil. So certainly uh, the, the, the cancellation of Keystone XL, now granted, that couldn't supply the market because you got to build the darn thing. So you are going to see that, that increase in oil imports from Canada for a number of years. But what canceling it did was, again, violate the economic law of, of capital. When you, when you are telling the market, we're not going to support a project as important as XL, well, we're telling you don't invest in other industries, in, in other fossil fuel industries. And the United States came out a couple months ago and told 
financiers here in the United States do not invest in overseas fossil fuels. They, they came out and said it. So the, the signal is clear. So with Canada, the potential is there. We're just not fully taking advantage of it. But markets are, are amazing organisms. When you block off what, one avenue, they can figure out another avenue normally to, to get what they ultimately need. And where I'm going with this is we had a major merger in the railroad industry between Kansas City Southern here in the United States and a Canadian Rail. I think it was Canadian Pacific Railroad. I, I might be... Okay. So Canadian Pacific. Now, what's great about this is for the first time ever, there is going to be a link, a railroad link from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. And now what's really important about this is that Canada Pacific has a tremendous intermodal operation where they can buy, they can load up all that oil being produced in Alberta up in Edmonton. They have a direct access to that. So we are going to get XL, Keystone XL here in the United States, but it's just going to be in the form of, of railroads because that link now between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern also provides a link to the Houston refinery industry. So yes, we are going to get, and that's relatively quick, it's just an issue of the supply of how many tankers uh, there are out there to get this Canadian oil onto the market. Refineries here on the East Coast of the United States in Philadelphia, we are a refinery epicenter on the East Coast. Our refineries buy Canadian oil coming through train. So Canada is in a position to help offset uh, some of the lack of supply. But we have to keep in mind that a pipeline is much safer than a railroad. Crude oil is a very volatile mix of hydrocarbons. We had a tragedy in a lakeside resort community in, in Ontario five or six years ago where a crude oil train went off the rails, exploded, and obliterated this town. And people were vaporized. So a crude oil train, a mile-long crude oil train, is a weapon of mass destruction. And either by accident, which is what happened in this resort uh, a number of years ago, or certainly by, by nefarious actors. There was a situation here in my hometown, Philadelphia, again, one of these crude oil trains coming down from Canada, the rail line goes right through center city Philadelphia on its way to uh, the refineries along the Delaware River. And there was an Amtrak passenger train that derailed in the, in the, in the rail yard in Philadelphia. When you looked at the pictures, that, that train derailed within about 10 feet of a crude oil train. Now, God forbid, if that collided with that train, you would have blown up half of Philadelphia. But this is where you're forcing the market. You're forcing the market. The market needs the oil. The market's going to get the oil, if not by pipeline, then by train. And certainly, this is where the situation we're at now. We're, we're playing a very risky game because we want to discourage oil, but you can't because demand is going to continue to grow, certainly grow throughout the next 10 years. And Canada is in a position. But if you're Canada, you'd be wise to uh, build access, export access through British Columbia. So you don't have to deal with all this political garbage in the United States uh, and all the roadblocks that the environmentalists will put, put up. Just sell your oil, get it to the West Coast and sell it to China. They'll have no qualms about buying your oil. So that would be the best thing for Canada to do. Stop relying on the United States. As the saying goes, the United States is harmless as an enemy. We're treacherous as a friend. So we are causing treachery through the Canadian oil patch. 
they'd be wise to diversify and give themselves the ability to get that oil to the Far East. Thank you for that. Can I now turn attention on to um, gas and LNG? And could North America be the saviour of Europe with our shortages of gas? Is that technically possible? How could it happen? Could it happen? It, it could happen, but it's not going to be the answer anytime in the near future because there is a number of LNG projects, more facilities along the Gulf Coast in the, in the petrochemical corridor there in Houston. There's more production coming online. So right now, no, the United States cannot offset that because we're already maxed out on, on what we're producing. We'll get a little bit more LNG by summer, but again, not a, an insignificant amount compared to what Europe's needs are. And then we'll get some more gas online in 2022 and then 2023, and that's it. So that, that's all the industry ha has built. And keep in mind, five years ago, 10 years ago, when the capital was being raised and these facilities were, were all approved by the regulatory bodies, you know, there was speculation that all this send-out capacity wasn't going to be built because natural gas prices were so cheap. Uh, now it's a situation where there's not enough in the current market dynamic, and we're not going to bring enough. So no, the United States is not the answer. It, a, once again, it is part of the answer. But even if we are able to export more, Europeans cannot import more because they don't have the import infrastructure built to, to take on this added natural gas. Germany has announced now that they've, seen, they've, they've had their come to Jesus moment and they've seen that, yes, we, we have to increase our ability to uh, import natural gas. But again, these are long, uh, long dated projects, and they're certainly uh, well into the future. So no, in, in, in the immediate term, in the midterm, no, the United States is unable to completely offset the lack of gas in Europe. Uh, thank you. Uh, so we're not going to be a friend of the U.S. then, are we? Absolutely not. Because, oh, yeah, and what I failed to mention is, yes, Europe is, wants natural gas, but guess what? Chinese want, want American gas also. So you're now competing. Uh, you have two different markets on, on the other side of the world competing for that natural gas. And of course, competition, if you're a producer, competition is great because our, you know, it just assures uh, strong pricing. Thank you. I, I, I want to weigh in there, John. Actually, I heard that today uh, the U.S. is now taking in uh, British steel. So you, they are more friendly too. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on today, Stephen. To end off this episode, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners from today? Yeah, absolutely. Do not just assume every avenue. Uh, stop the zero sum category of it, it's all or nothing and, and support and demand from your government that you, you have a clear playing field. Renewables are certainly part of the answer. Heck, I, I'm an energy guy, but I own an electric hybrid SUV and I love the darn thing. So we're, we're certainly moving in that direction. But and so from a, from a takeaway, Yes, on, on your next, you know, you know, look into it, but also keep in mind that energy, fossil fuel energy is still a dynamic part of the global economy. And that's not going to change in my, our generation or in the next three generations. Thanks for that, Stephen. Any final comments, Dave? I found that it was great because Stephen 
conveyed very clearly many times the importance of a variety of energy sources. You can't just focus on one item that you do need to look at the whole mix portfolio approach. And he conveyed that again. But I, I think, again, many people, you know, who may not be in the energy industry focus on uh, one particular area, thinking that's what they need to focus on, whether good or bad. And I think he really articulated that is not the way to go. You really need to have look at a mix. So I, I thought that was really reinforced quite well. So I, I really appreciate Stephen's input on that. John, you, any Ruth. final comments? Yeah, I, I similar to, to Dave's, one, one of the themes that's been going through our podcast is that there aren't binary solutions. You know, it's good or bad, it's this or that. And I think this just goes to, to reinforce that. I also think it reinforces the fact that you should listen to as many different people as you can within the sector to get the different views because we we tend to we tend to filter out the views you know we will confirmation bias we'll listen to the people who are telling us what we want to hear we won't necessarily listen to people who've got an alternative view and i think we've got to do more of that great point well dave john stephen thank you for your time today been a pleasure oh, it was great to be here thank you thanks very much that's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.